again, my guest. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> sit. Sit. The fire is so warm. And the stories I have for you tonight will chill your bones. <laughs> oh. oh, shut out your lights. Turn the lights off. Turn the volume up. <laughs> Light some candles. Sacrifice a virgin. I mean, sit back and relax. Let us open tonight's chapter with a tale by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who brings us a tale of revenge with the case of Lady Sanox. The relations between Douglas Stone and the notorious Lady Sanox were very, very well known, both among the fashionable circles of which she was a brilliant member and the scientific bodies which numbered him among their most illustrious conferences. There was naturally, therefore, a very widespread interest when it was announced one morning that the Lady had absolutely uh, and for over, uh, forever taken the veil and that the world would see her no more. When, at the very tale of this rumour, there came the assurance that the celebrated operating surgeon, the man of steel nerves, had been found in the morning by his valet, seated on one side of his bed, smiling pleasantly upon the universe, with both legs jammed into one side of his breeches, and his great brain about as valuable as a cup, uh, a cup full of porridge... The matter was strong enough to give quite a little thrill of interest to folk who had never hoped that their jaded nerves were capable of such a sensation. Douglas Stone in his prime was one of the most remarkable men in England. Indeed, he could hardly be said to have ever reached his prime, for he was but nine and thirty at the time of his little incident. Those who knew him best were aware that, fa that famous as he was as a surgeon, he might have succeeded with a even greater rapidity in any of a dozen lines of life. He could have cut his way to fame as a soldier, struggled to it as an explorer, bullied for it in the courts, or built it out of stone and iron as an engineer. He was born to be great, for he could plan what another man dare not do. And he could do what another man dare not plan. In surgery, none could follow him. His nerve, his judgment, his intuition were things apart. Again and again, his knife cut away death, but grazed the very springs of life in doing it, until his assistants were as white as the patient. His energy, his audacity, his full-blooded self-confidence, does not the memory of them still linger to the south of Marrowbone Road and the north of Oxford Street? 
His vices were as magnificent as his virtues, and infinitely more picturesque. Large as was his income, and it was the, the third largest of all professional men in London. It was far beneath the luxury of his living. Deep in his complex nature by, uh, lay a rich vein of sensualism. At the sport of which he placed all the prizes of his life, the eye, the ear, the touch, the, the palate, all were his masters. The bouquet of old vintages, the scent of rare exotics, the curves and tints of the daintiest potteries of Europe. It was to these that the quick-running stream of gold was transformed, and there they came his sudden mad passion for Lady Sanox. When a single interview with two challenging glances and a whispered word set him ablaze, she was the loveliest woman in London, and the only one to him, he was one of the handsomest men in London, but not the only one to her. She had a liking for new experiences and was gracious to most men who wooed her. It may have been cause, or it may have been effect, that Lord Sanox looked fifty, though he was but sixty and thirty. He was a quiet, silent, neutral-tinted man, this lord with thin lips and heavy eyelids, much given to gardening and full of home-like habits. He had at one time been fond of acting, had even rented a theatre in London, and on its boards had first seen Miss Marion Dawson, to whom he had offered his hand, his title, and the third of a, of a county. Since his marriage, his early hobby had become distasteful to him. Even in private theatricals, it was no longer possible to persuade him to exercise the talent which he had often showed that he possessed. He was happier with a spud and a watering can among his orchids and chrysanthemums. It was quite an interesting problem when, uh, whether he was absolutely devoid of sense or miserably wanting in spirit. Did he know his lady's ways and condone them, or was he a mere blind, doting fool? It was a point to be discussed over the teacups in snug little drawing rooms, with the aid of a cigar in the, in the bow windows of clubs. Bitter and plain were the comments among men ab uh, upon his conduct. There was but one who had a good word to say for him, and he was the most silent member in the smoking room. He had seen him streak in a horse at the university, and it seemed to have left an impression upon his mind. But when Douglas Stone became the favourite, all doubts as to Lord Sanox's knowledge or ignorance were set forever at rest. There was no subterfuge about Stone. In his high-handed, impetuous fashion, he set all caution and discretion at defiance. The scandal became notorious, a learned body intimate that his name had been struck from the list of its vice-presidents. Two friends implored him to consider his professional credit. He cursed them all three and spent forty guineas on a bangle to, uh, to take with him to the lady. He was at her house every evening and she drove in his carriage in the afternoons. There was not an attempt on either side to conceal their relations, but there came at last a little incident to interrupt them. It was a dismal winter's night, very cold and gusty, with the wind whipping in the chimneys and blustering against the window panes. A thin pa spatter of rain tinkled on the glass with each fresh sough of the gale. 
drowning for the instant the dull gurgle and drip from the from the eaves. Douglas Stone had finished his dinner and sat by his fire in the in the study, a glass of rich port upon the malachite table at his elbow. As he raised it to his lips, he held it up against the lamplight and watched with the eye of a commissure the tiny scales of beeswing which floated in its rich ruby depths. The fire, as it spurted up, threw fitful lights upon his bold, clear-cut face with its widely opened grey eyes, its thick and yet firm lips and the deep square jaw which had something Roman in its strength and in its animalism. He smiled from time to time as he nestled back in his luxurious chair. Indeed, he had a right to feel well, uh, well pleased, for against the advice of six colleagues, he had performed an operation that day of which only two cases were on record, and the result had been brilliant beyond all expectation. No other man in London would have had the daring to plan or the skill to execute such a heroic measure. But he had promised Lady Sanox to see her that evening, and it was already half-past eight. His hand was outstretched to the bell uh, to order the carriage when he heard the dull thud of the knocker. An instant later, there was the shuffling of feet in the hall and the sharp closing of a door. A patient to see you, sir, in the consulting room, said the butler. About himself? Uh, no, sir, I think he wants you to go out. It is too late, cried Douglas Stone peevishly. I won't go. This is his card, sir. The butler presented it upon the gold salver, which had been given to his master by the wife of a prime minister. Hamil Ali Smyrna. Hmm. The fellow is a Turk, I suppose. Uh, yes, sir. He seems as if he came from abroad, sir. And he's in a terrible way. I have an engagement. I must go somewhere else, but I'll see him. Show him in here, Pim. A few moments later, the butler swung open the door and ushered in a small and decrepit man who walked with a bent back and with the forward push of the face and blink of the eyes, which goes with extreme short sight. His face was swarthy and his hair and beard of the deepest black. In one hand, he held a turban of white muslin striped with red in the other, a small, chamois leather bag. Good evening, said D Douglas Stone when the butler had closed the door. Uh, you speak English, I presume? Uh, yes, sir. I am from Asia Minor, but I speak English when I speak slow. You wanted me to go out, I understand. Uh, yes, sir. I uh, wanted very much that you should see my wife. I could come in the morning, but I have an engagement which prevents me from seeing your wife tonight. The Turk's answer was a singular one. He pulled the string which closed the mouth of the chamois leather bag and poured a flood of gold onto the table. Oh, there are one hundred pounds there, he said. And I promise you that I will not take you an hour. I have a cab ready at the door. Douglas Stone glanced at his watch. An hour would not make it too late to visit Lady Sanox. He had been there. Uh, he had been there later, and the fee was an extraordinarily high one. He had been pressed by his creditors lately, and he could not afford to let such a chance pass. He would go. Uh, uh, what is the case? He asked. Oh, it is, a, it is so sad a one. So sad a one. You have not perhaps heard of the daggers of the Almohades. 
no, never. Uh, they are an eastern daggers of a great age and of a singular shape with the hilt like what you call a, a stirrup. I am a curiosity dealer, you understand, and that is why I have come to England from Smyrna. But next week I go back once more. Many things I brought with me, and I have a few things left, but among them, to, to my sorrow, is one of these daggers. Now, you will remember that I have an appointment, sir, said the surgeon, with some irritation. Pray confine yourself to the necessary details. You will see that it is necessary. Today my wife fell down in a faint in the room in which I keep my wares, and she cut her lower lip upon the cursed dagger of Almohades. I see, said Douglas Stone, rising, and you wish me to dress the wound. No, 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 it's much worse than that. Well, what then? These daggers are poisoned. Poisoned? Yes, and there is no man east or west who can tell now what is the poison or what the cure. But all that is known, I know, for my father was in this trade before me, and we have had such uh, much to do with these poisoned weapons. Oh, what are the symptoms? A deep sleep and death in thirty hours. And you say there is no cure. Why then should you pay me this considerable fee? No drug can cure, but the knife may. And how? The poison is slow of absorption. It remains for hours in the wound, washing. Washing then might cleanse it. No, no more than in a snake bite. It is too subtle and too deadly. Excision of the wound then. That is it. If it be on the finger, take the finger off. So said my father always. But think of where this wound is, and that is my wife. It is beautiful. The familiarity with such grim matters may take the finer edge from a man's sympathy. To Douglas Stone, this was already an interesting case, and he brushed aside as irrelevant the feeble objections of the husband. It appears to be that or nothing, said he brusquely. It is better to lose a lip than a life. Ah, yes, I know that you're right. Well, well, it is Kisme, and it must be faced. I have the cabin. You will come with me and do this thing. Douglas Stone took his case of mysteries from the, from the drawer and placed it with a roll of bandage and a compress of lint in his pocket. He must waste no more time if he were to see Lady Sanox. I am ready, said he, pulling on his overcoat. Will you take a glass of wine before you go out into this cold air? His visitor shrank away with a protesting hand upraised. You forget that I am a Mussulman and a true follower of the Prophet, said he. But tell me, what is the bottle of green glass which you have placed in your pocket? It is chloroform. Ah, that also is forbidden to us. It's a spirit and we make no use of such things. What? You would allow your wife to go through an operation without an anaesthetic? Uh, she will feel nothing, poor soul. The deep sleep has already come on, which is the first working of the poison. And then I have given her of our Smyrna opium. Come, sir, for already an hour has passed. As they stepped out into the darkness, a sheet of rain was driven in upon their faces, and the whole lamp, which dangled from the arm of a marble serotide, went out with a fluff. Pim, the butler, pushed the heavy door to straining hard with his shoulder against the wind while the two men groped their way towards the yellow glare which showed where the cab was waiting. An instant later, they were rattling upon their journey. 
Uh, is it far? Asked Douglas Stone. Oh, no, 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 no. We have a very little quiet place off the Euston Road. The surgeon pressed the spring of his repeater and listened to the little tings which told him the hour. It was a quarter past nine. He calculated the distance and the short time which it would take him to perform so trivial an operation. He ought to reach Lady Sanox by ten o'clock. Through the fogged windows he saw the, the blurred glass lamps dancing past with occasionally the broader glare of a shop front. The rain was pelting and rattling upon the leathern top of the carriage and the wheels swashed as they rolled through the puddle and mud. Opposite to him the, the white headgear of his companion gleamed faintly through the obscurity. The surgeon felt in his pockets and arranged his needles, his ligatures and his safety pins that no time might be wasted when they arrived. He chafed with impatience and drummed his foot upon the floor. But the cab slowed down at last and pulled up. In an instant, Douglas Stone was out and the Smyrna merchant's toe was at his very heel. You can wait, said he to the driver. It was a mean-looking house in a narrow and sordid street. The surgeon, who knew his London well, cast a swift glance into the shadows, but there was nothing distinctive, no shop, no movement, nothing but a double line of dull, flat-faced houses, a double stretch of wet flagstones which gleamed in the lamplight, and a double rush of water in the gutters which swirled and gurgled towards the sewer gratings. The door which faced them was blotched and discoloured, and a faint light in the, in the fan pane above it served to show the dust and the grime which covered it. Above, in one of the bedroom windows, there was a dull yellow glimmer. The merchant knocked loudly, and as he turned his dark face towards the light, Douglas Stone could see that it was contracted with anxiety. A bolt was drawn, and the elderly woman with a taper stood in the doorway, shielding the thin flame with her gnarled hand. "'Is all well?' gasped the merchant. Uh, "'She is as you left her, sir.' "'She has not spoken?' Uh, no, she is in a deep sleep. The merchant closed the door and Douglas Stone walked down the narrow passage, glancing about him in some surprise as he did so. There was no oilcloth, no mat, no hat rack. Deep grey dust and heavy festoons of cobwebs met his eyes everywhere. Following the old woman up the winding stair, his firm foothold echoed harshly through the silent house. There was no carpet. The bedroom was on the second landing. Douglas Stone followed the old nurse into it with the merchant at his heels. Here, at least, there was furniture and to spare. The floor was littered and the corners piled with Turkish cabinets, inlaid tables, coats of chainmail, strange pipes and grotesque weapons. A single small lamp stood upon a bracket on the wall. Douglas Stone took it down and, picking his way among the lumber, walked over to a couch in the corner on which lay a woman dressed in the Turkish fashion with yashmak and veil. The lower part of the face was exposed and the surgeon saw a jagged cut with zigzagged along the, the border of the under lip. You will forgive the yashmak, said the Turk. You know our views about women in the East. The surgeon was not thinking about the yashmak. This was no longer a woman to him. It was a case. He stooped and examined the wound carefully. Uh, there are no signs of irritation, said he. We might delay the operation until local symptoms develop. 
The husband wrung his hands in uncontrollable agitation. Oh, sir, 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 he cried. Do not trifle. You do not know it is deadly. I know and I give you my assurance that an operation is absolutely necessary. Only the knife can save her. And yet I am inclined to wait, said Douglas Stone. Uh, that is enough, the Turk cried angrily. Every minute is of importance, and I cannot stand here and see my wife allowed to sink. It only remains for me to give you my thanks for having come and to call in some other surgeon before it is too late. Douglas Stone hesitated. To refund that hundred pounds was no pleasant matter, but of course if he had... If he left the case, he must return the money. And if the Turk were right and the woman died, his position before a coroner might be an embarrassing one. You have had personal experience of this poison. I have. And you assure me that an operation is needful. I swear it by all that I hold sacred. The disfigurement will be frightful. I can understand that the, the mouth will not be a pretty one to kiss. Douglas Stone turned fiercely upon the man. The speech was a brutal one, but the Turk has his own fashion of talk and of thought. There was no time for wrangling. Douglas Stone drew a bistery from his case, opened it, and felt the keen straight edge with his forefinger. Then he held the lamp closer to the bed. Two dark eyes were gazing up at him through the slit in the ashmack. They were all iris, and the pupil was hardly to be seen. You have given a very heavy dose of opium. Uh, yes, she had to have a, a good dose. He glanced again at the dark eyes, which looked straight at his own. They were dull and lustreless. But even as he gazed, a little shifting sparkle came into them, and the lips quivered. Uh, she is not absolutely unconscious, said he. Uh, would it not be well to use the knife while it will be painless? The same thought had crossed the surgeon's mind. He... He grasped the, the wounded lip with his forceps, and with two swift cuts he took out a broad V-shaped piece. The woman sprang up on the couch with a dreadful gurgling scream. Her covering was torn from her face. It was a face that he knew. In spite of that protruding upper lip and the slobber of blood, it was a face that he knew. She kept on putting her hand up to the gap and screaming. Douglas Stone sat down at the foot of the couch with his knife and his forceps. The room was whirling around, and he had felt something go like a ripping seam behind his ear, and a bystander would have said that his face was more ghastly of the two. As in a dream, or as if he had been looking at something in, at the play, he was conscious that the Turk's hair and beard lay upon the table, and that Lord Sanox was leaning against the wall with his hand to his side, laughing silently. The screams had died away now, and the dreadful head had dropped back again again upon the pillow, but Douglas Stone still sat motionless, and Lord Sanox still chuckled quietly to himself. It was really very necessary for Marion this operation, he, said he. Not physically, but morally. You know morally. Douglas Stone stooped for, for yards and began to play with the fringe of the coverlet. His knife tinkled down upon the ground, but he still held the forceps and something more. I had long intended to make a little example, said Lord Sanox suavely. Your note of Wednesday miscarried, and I have it here in my pocketbook. I took some paint in carrying out my idea. The wound, by the way, was from nothing more dangerous than my signet ring. 
He glanced keenly at his silent companion and copped the small revolver which he held in his coat pocket, but Douglas Stone still picking at the coverlet. You see you have kept your appointment after all, said Lord Sanox. And at that Douglas Stone began to laugh. He laughed long and loudly, but Lord Sanox did, uh, did not laugh now. Something like fear sharpened and harpened his, his, his features. He walked from the room and he walked on tiptoe. The old woman was waiting outside. Attend to your mistress when she awakes, said Lord Sanox. Then he went down to the street. The cab was at the door and the driver raised his hand to his hat. John, said Lord Sanox, you will take the doctor home first. He will want leading downstairs, I think. Tell his butler that he has been taken ill at a case. Uh, very good, sir. Then you can take Lady Sanox home. And how about yourself, sir? Oh, my address for the next few months will be Hotel de Roma, Venice. Just see that the letters are sent on. Tell Stevens to exhibit all the purple chrysanthemums next Monday and to wire me the result. This week's story comes from the 1945 radio show Inner Sanctum. The Song of the Slasher, a story about a cop who discovers that he's living in the same building with a homicidal maniac. <laughs> Written by Milton Lewis, starring Arnold Moss as Detective Miller. Here is Song of our journey into the realm of the strange and terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, that it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves. Where are we going? You'll find out when we get there. Lipton Soup presents Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host, Raymond, the gay ghoul. Friends, would you like to uh, fly through the air with the greatest speed? Do you think you'd enjoy being invisible, huh? <laughs> oh, it's easy. All you have to do is become a ghost. And to become a ghost, all you have to do is accentuate the ectoplasm and eliminate the protoplasm. Man! If that doesn't work, we'll introduce you to one of the characters on our show. He'll take care of you. And that's the truth. What awful people on this show. Wherever do you find them, Mr. Raymond? Well, it's simple. All you have to do is turn over a rock and out they come crawling. Hmm. All right, Mary. Um, as long as you're in the kitchen, you'd better sharpen up a couple of knives. As our main character tonight is going to use them. A story is called Song of the Slasher. 
It's an original radio play by Milton Lewis and stars Arnold Moss in the role of Detective Dan Miller. Are you uh, ready? Then uh, gather close and listen. If you find you're getting too many chills and just sit in the fire. Huh? <laughs> a thick, murky fog hangs like a damp veil over the waterfront. Streets are deserted. The buildings loom like tombstones in a cemetery. No living soul can be seen because people who sense stay behind locked doors. Slasher has murdered and mutilated his fifth victim in eight days. In a drab, lonely little room, a young woman suddenly looks up when she hears a door close. Paul? Well, what's the matter? Can't you speak? Hey, you, get away from me. Get back up. That knife. What are you doing with that knife? You're a flasher. Help! Help me, someone! It's a flasher! It's the slasher. What are you talking about? He's here. Twelve doctors. He's upstairs. Mr. Nell's apartment. I can hear it screaming now. He's with her. I go upward. I, I am, I'm an old man. It's the slasher. He's killing her. Hello? Is that you, Miller? Speaking. This is Captain Quinn, headquarters. Here's the chance you've been waiting for. The slasher's at 12 Dock Street, right around the corner from you. On my way, Captain. Bye. started. The detective was asked to do some queer things in the line of duty. I didn't mind moving down to the dump at the waterfront with my wife if it would help catch the slasher. So when I got the call, I rushed out of my joint and beat it down to 12 Dock Street. Oh. oh. Where is he? Where'd he go? He... He... Listen, I... I... Oh, don't do that. I'll get your doctor. I... Uh... And listen to me, sister. I know her name is. Are they going to send an ambulance? Yeah, yeah, but it won't do her no good. You were too late. Did you see the guy who did it? I saw nobody. He can't be far. He was here a minute ago. I heard someone go out the back way. When? A minute ago. Listen. It's coming from that alley down there. Fog's so thick you can't see two feet ahead of you. The back way goes into the alley. Well, then... Then it's him. The slasher. I got down to the alley, the radio cars and the men from the precinct were coming. We went through that neighborhood with a sieve. But we couldn't find the guy who whistled that queer tune. Yeah. Oh. What happened? Well, you shouldn't have got out of bed, baby. I was worried. He got away. Did he kill another? Yeah, yeah, another dame. It wasn't so foggy I could have seen him. That's how close it was. Any clues? No, nothing to speak of. Hey, look, look, baby, don't you worry about this. You go back and get some sleep. I'm frightened, Danny. That man is somewhere in this neighborhood and us living here. I shouldn't have brought you down here. You're going back to our old place tomorrow. No, I'm not. I don't want you here alone, and I want to stay with Shut you. Shut up. Danny. Listen. What? 
hear that, don't you? That ain't something I'm hearing in my head, is it? Danny, what are you... Answer me, answer me. I want to make sure I ain't hearing things. Well, of course I hear it. It's someone whistling. But why are you acting like this? Gee, the... The slasher whistles that tune. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. I heard him tonight. Then the killer... The slasher must be somewhere around here. I'm going out, baby. Lock the door. The whistling was somewhere in the building. I listened. Where was it coming from? It was gone. I looked at my watch. 4.30 in the morning. I walked down the stairs listening for the whistle. I, I walked on my toes. Listened at the other flats. I didn't hear a thing. I went down into the cellar. There was someone there, all right. Oh, who's there? It was Sykes, a janitor. I came closer. Oh. oh, it's you, Mr. Miller. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Sykes. Hey, what's the matter? You're, you're shaking like you got a fever. You, you frightened me. Why? I thought you were the slasher. Yeah? He's around here, you know. He might be hiding in these shadows. He might be anywhere. Everybody's afraid of him. Everybody. Yeah, yeah, so I hear. Uh, what time did you come down here? 4.30, like I do every morning. Why? See any stranger in the building? No. I didn't see anyone. Who lives in the flat below us? Mr. Trevelyan. Reginald Trevelyan. Funny name. He's a funny fella. Never sleeps at night. Wanders around the building whistling to himself. Whistling to himself? Yeah. He writes music or something. He got a piano in his place today. He talks crazy sometimes. Think he's up there now? Yeah, he never sleeps. Here. $20? Yeah, yeah, it's for you. Why are you giving this to me? I want you to tell me when Mr. Trevelyan leaves his apartment. Do you get it? Yeah, but... But why? I ain't paying you 20 bucks to ask questions. Mr. Miller. Yes? What is it, Mr. Miller? My wife and I live upstairs. I know it's kind of late, but uh, can I come in here for a minute? Of course. Hope I'm not disturbing you. No, it's quite all right. You the people who moved in a few days ago? That's right. Glad to know you. My name is Reginald Trevelyan. Dan Miller's mine. You been up all night? Yes. Why do you ask? Uh, because maybe you can help me. Someone tried to break into our place at about 4.30 this morning. Really? Mr. Miller, you think your wife would be very annoyed if I play the piano now? No. No, I don't think so. She, uh, she likes music. Does she? Seemed like a charming girl. I noticed her when you first moved in. You're very lucky to have such an attractive wife. 
You, uh, you whistle yourself like that very often? Yes. Especially when I'm working on a new composition. Wait a moment. I think I have it. I've been trying to work out that message all night. Mr. Miller, please get out of here. I want to be alone. You're a query, you are. I'm not interested in your opinion. Well, what are you waiting for? Get out of here! Get out of here! Try it! What? What? That passage. Do you see what you've done? I had it a minute ago, and now it's gone, gone. It sounds been lately. I keep forgetting things. I'm sorry. I was rude to you. I didn't mean to be. Just a minute. Good night. Mr. Miller, is it really true what it says in the papers about the slasher? That he has the whole neighborhood trembling in terror? Yes. Lovely. Trembling for their miserable little lives. Worried about their dirty little souls. Shivering in fear in their ugly little rat holes. If I knew who the slasher was, I'd embrace him and give him every penny I had. Why? Because I hate them. Because they laugh at me. Because... I phoned headquarters, told them to check on Trevelyan. Oh, he was a queer one, all right. So queer, I didn't tell Laura about him. I didn't want to scare her. Couldn't arrest him. I didn't have anything on him yet. I lay down to rest. Maybe I heard it in my dream. Maybe not. But I heard that whistling again. That same tune. I think that's what woke me. I looked around. Laura. She was gone. And the door was open. <laughs> The hall was filled with thick fog. In the yellow light, I saw a crumpled heap on the floor. I recognized Laura's bathrobe. Ah, the slasher, that's my boy. He's not the type of low character who goes around murdering his friends and relatives. No, he's so big-hearted he murders anyone. Even people he's never introduced to. He's no snob. Snob? He's much worse than a snob. He's a lunatic. Oh, Mary, you're so unsympathetic. He's just lonely. He wants to get close to people with a knife. Well, if he's so lonely, then why does he go around cutting people? You see, Mr. Raymond, I can say the same kind of things you do. Don't you dare just be your sweet, practical self or else... You can't frighten me, Mr. Raymond. Well, we've kept the blood from flowing long enough. On with the murders. Listen as we hear Arnold Moss as Dan Miller finish that story. Laura was alive in a dead faint. I scooped her up in my arms and rushed her back to our flat. 
She opened her eyes a few minutes later. Dan. You're okay, baby. You were going to kill me. Yeah, yeah. Drink some of this. Thanks. Oh, Danny, it was awful. What happened? Well, you were asleep. I, I went out to get the milk, and I heard someone whistling. Do you remember what? That same queer melody we heard before, the one the slasher whistled. So I thought I'd help you. Help me? I thought I'd see him. I walked quietly down the hall, and there was no one there. Then I turned the corner. Yeah? I saw the knife gleam. Someone was hiding in the shadows. He grabbed my neck, and I screamed. I screamed, Danny. I, I screamed so I thought I'd burst my throat, and then it all went black. Did you see him? No, but I felt his hands on my throat. They were strong hands, fingers like steel, and I... Danny, I'm sorry. I, I can't even talk about it. I... Oh, now, lie down, lie down. You'll be all right. But when you think that he's right here, maybe living in this building... Well, he won't be here long. I'm calling headquarters. But you know who he is. I got a good idea. Now, just let me get on that phone and... Oh, Danny, maybe that's him. Now, take it easy, take it easy, kid. Oh. Who's there? Right. It's just a janitor, baby. Oh. What do you want? He went out. Provided? Yeah. Okay. Laura, get dressed. I want to get you out of here before the trouble starts. I'll be gone for a few minutes. Where are you going? With Mr. Sykes. You got a key, Sykes? Yeah, but I'll have to go along with you. You you can't take anything. You know what this badge means? You a detective? Yeah, yeah. Now, let's go. What are you doing here? Looking for the slasher? I'll write your book about it, pal. Now, here's his choice. Open the door. All right. But you'll have to hurry. He may come back any minute. All I want is enough evidence. I'll take care of him when we get it. The door's open. Come on in. It was eight in the morning. But it could have been eight at night. The fog was so thick. I knew this was it. I couldn't take any chances. I had to get all the evidence on it before I nabbed him. And I had to get it without him being wise. What are you looking for? Knives. We know he's got at least three. I don't see none. Well, neither do I. Maybe it's a bum steer. I could be wrong. Hey, hey, what's this? Music. He's always writing it. I used to be a choir boy once. They taught me how to read them notes. I wonder if I still can. Why? Well, because I think this may be a tune I'm looking for. Let me see. Song. Did you ever hear it before? Yeah. Bet you did. He's always whistling it. I heard it myself when he killed the last one. You gotta find those knives. You better hurry. I think he just went out to get some breakfast. I looked everywhere. Couldn't find the knives. I couldn't bring a guy in just because I heard a song. I found a bunch of keys. They were trunk keys. But there was no trunk. I think I hear him coming. Never mind what you think. Where does he keep his trunk? In the storeroom in the cellar. He's always going down there for things. Hold it, hold it. That's him. Yeah. Come here. There's room behind this upright piano for both of us. What, the piece to shut up? Shut up. Get behind here and hurry. He sat down at the piano and played a queer arrangement of the same tune that led me to him. I reached for my gun just in case. Suddenly, I felt the sweat ooze out of me. It was sweat that, that felt like ice. 
I didn't have my gun. I remembered I took it off when I laid down to rest. It's all wrong, all wrong. Why can't I get it right? Going out again. Come on, Sykes. I told you to hurry before. I hear him going down those stairs. It's, it's safe to go now. All right, Sykes. We're going to open that trunk in the store. Here's his trunk, Mr. Miller. This key should open it. Are they the knives? Yeah. The knives. Look at them. Look at them. Covered with blood. Hmm. Sykes, go to the police precinct. Tell them Miller sent you. Tell them to come over here with as many men as they can spare. All right. All right. I took the knives and put them under my coat. Went up to my room. Yes, dear. Yes, I'm leaving. I'll be home soon. I could hear Laura talking on the phone to someone. I opened the door. Oh, my I better hang up now. Danny just came in. Goodbye, darling. Who are you talking to? Mother, I'm I'm ready to go. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's no rush. Listen, Danny. That man at the piano. Sounds like the flasher song. Yeah. What have we got there? My gun. Come on, baby, we're gone. That man playing the piano. Are you sure he's a flasher? Yeah. Positive. Oh, Danny, you're hurting my arm. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. I'm nervous. That's his place. Come on in with me. Come in with you? Yeah. yeah. I figured out a way to trap him. But Danny, I... Don't be scared, baby. You'll be okay. Oh. You? Yeah, yeah, Mr. Trevelyan. I... I'd like you to meet my wife. I'm delighted. How do you do? Would you like to hear something? It's a composition I've just completed. I've had a great deal of trouble with it. But I think I've got it right now. Oh, what are you? Oh, that gun. Yeah, you got it coming to your slasher. You stupid swine. You idiot. Why did you give me a chance? My music. Not even written down. <laughs> You murdered him. Yeah. Why? You'll find out. What are you going to do with that knife? It's one of his knives. Stand still, Laura. Danny, do me. In a minute. Danny, what's the matter You'll with you? You got it coming to you, too. Danny! I know who you were talking to on that phone. It wasn't your old lady. What? It was Jerry Boyd, that guy who lives next door, wasn't it? Answer me, wasn't it? No, no. Lie to me. So this is why you made me come down here with you. You planned this all along. That's right, baby. And that's why I had you insured for 40 grand. Oh. You made one bad mistake. You married a smart cookie. You're going to kill me and blame it on the slasher. Yeah. No! Help me, someone! Help me! And then I, I smeared Trevelyan's hand over the handle. I knew what to do. Made it look good, made it look perfect. There's a way to get away with murder. 
And I found it. I thought. Go on with the report, Noah. Well, Captain Quinney, after I sent Sykes to the precinct, I went upstairs for my gun. My wife wasn't there, and I got the gun, and I heard a scream. I rushed to his place. I opened the door. I, I saw Laura. The second I thought I'd pass out. Yeah? He, he grabbed a knife and come at me, and I shot him and killed him. Oh, Laura. She was insured for $40,000, wasn't she? Yeah. 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 Well, what difference does that make now? A lot of difference, fella. I want you to meet someone. Come in, Sykes. Yes, Captain. Did you hear Detective Miller's report clearly? Yes, sir. Was he telling the truth? No. He lied. What are you talking about? I didn't go to the police when you told me. I hid in the cellar. I saw you go upstairs. I saw you get your wife and go to Trevelyan's place. I listened at the door. I heard you shoot Trevelyan and then murder your wife. Captain, the man's insane. Yes, Miller. A homicidal maniac. I'll take away his coat. You see? He's handcuffed. I don't get it. He's the slasher. He? It's impossible. I told you about that melody. Why, it's still on Trevelyan's piano. Trevelyan copying down that melody after he heard Sykes whistle it. Yeah. I whistled the whole thing for him. But the knives I found in Trevelyan's trunk. I put them there. I know who you were. Sykes was trying to frame Trevelyan. He's made a complete confession, Noah. But how did you find out when that When you he... asked us to check on Trevelyan, we discovered that he's quite a famous, if eccentric, composer. I checked up on the other people in the building at the same time. I found out that Sykes escaped from the State Institute for the Insane two years ago. He's confessed. Yeah. I'm the slasher. Why should Trevelyan become famous for what I'd done? You had a perfect crime all figured out, Miller. But you made one little mistake. You decided the wrong person was the slasher. Even a copper can't pull a perfect one, Miller. So I'm telling you all this because... In ten minutes I won't be able to tell nobody anything. Ever since I made my report, I've been... Been hearing that song in my head. Like like somebody whistling it. <laughs> Next time you seek revenge. <laughs> make sure you have the right person. <laughs> and we'll have another dramatic thriller. Next Friday night. <laughs> right now, though. We need to take a very quick commercial break. Don't go too far. <laughs> oh, welcome back to the midnight hour. <laughs> A lot of mail lately. Uh, several. <laughs> I requested that we play an encore of the Fremantle Prison 
midnight hour interview with Matthew Bateman Graham. So enjoy. <laughs> I'm here with Matthew, uh, who is one of the tour guides here at Fremantle Prison in Western Australia. Um, Matthew, um, Fremantle Prison's been going, well, it was operating for a long time. Yes. Um, what year did it start? Well, um, the original inhabitants of this area, Fremantle, are the Wajak people, to them this is known as Wajak, or in understanding the descendants. The British settled here in 1829. We started off as a free settlement. We didn't want convicts like the Eastern Coast. But 20 years later, there's less than 4,000 British settlers because among other things, uh, people thought that West Australia was too far away. Mm -hmm. So in 1850, the farmers and businesses petitioned for convicts to be brought to West Australia. Not only was there a shortage of labor, but there was no infrastructure being built. Okay. So from 1850 to 1868, all convicts sent here, about 9,000 of them, were sent here to Fremantle and had to be taught building skills by the British Army and the convicts built their own prison. Mm -hmm. From 1852 to 1859, they worked outside the walls during the daytime, building and working, and then after a couple of years, they're sent to uh, training de to uh, depots north and south of uh, West Australia to work for farmers and businesses and to build much needed bridges, roads, infrastructure we still use today, including Perth Town Hall and Government House. Mm -hmm. and, and when did the prison stop? Um, well, last colony boat arrived in 1868, then in 1882 gold was discovered, and instead of this place being knocked down, as a lot of convict buildings were at the end of the 19th century, because by that time Australians were ashamed of the convict past, well, it was too big to knock down. In the 19th century, it was the longest and tallest cell block in the Southern Hemisphere. It was built to house 1,000 inmates. Wow. So, in 1886, the British gave it to the West Australian government, they closed down Perth Jail, which is now part of the Bulabada WA Museum, mm -hmm. and they brought the prisoners down here, and this became West Australia's major civilian prison. And it was such a huge prison, it was our major prison in West Australia up to 1991. Wow. And then there was talk of Nokia Down becoming a, a shopping centre. Uh, but by this time, we had the America's Cup in 1987, and people realised that Fremantle could have another industry besides fishing and shipping, and that is tourism. Yeah, the prison could be a big asset. So when it closed in 8th, 11th, 1991, it was ready to go, open up 26th of January, 1992 uh, for tourism. Mm -hmm. And then 2010, it became an internationally heritage listed building by UNESCO. Awesome. And uh, now the, the prison, um, uh, because the, the radio show is mm -hmm. all about ghosts mm -hmm. and ghost stories mm -hmm. and things that go bump in the night. Mm -hmm. um, now I know that there are some ghosts Mm -hmm. here in Fremantle yep. Prison. So can you tell us about uh, some of these uh, experiences that mm -hmm. either you've had or that some of your colleagues have mm -hmm. had? Or yes. Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, it's a prison. It's a place of really great unhappiness. We have a lot of people who are sensitive, filled the sort of vibes about that, going around the prison in daytime and nighttime. It's a 19th century building. It was built deliberately on top of a hill. And it's over, you know, over 150 years old, so at night the wind comes off the ocean, everything rattles and moans and shuts. 
And if you come on the night tours, we do the tours with the lights off and we give you a torch. So many people have experienced uh, strange things and phenomena. And uh, one of the things of the modern technology is the iPhone. People, we encourage people when we have the night tours to take photographs of everything because sometimes you see something in the camera that you don't see mm -hmm. uh, with human, human sight. So I've seen a person show me an image of moving lights and this is a phenomenon known as orbs mm -hmm. in some, some psychic um, some, uh, websites. Um, and I've got to feel for, sorry for the security people because they have to walk up when everyone else has gone home and they go to that big echo and bring all the lights out. And in 2002, there was a tour supervisor, Sean, a security guard, Greg, and they're locking off and turning off the lights. And Sean was standing in a part of the prison and he was waiting for Greg to come down. And he saw up on the landing and lights coming out of uh, um, the chapel. And he called out saying, stop fooling around, come down here, we've got to lock up. We didn't talk to Greg like that because he turned around and Greg was standing right beside him. Then they'd be the only two people left in the prison and there's this burning light uh, hovering above them. So uh, wow. uh, Sean uh, Greg was, went from being a security guard to being an unsecured guard. He ran to the door and he didn't get out first because Sean beat him to it. <laughs> so this is one of the, we have uh, many uh, people on the tours. At the end of the tour, we check their phones and they see these strange lights. Some people say it's just a uh, way that spirits transfer energy from one part of the, of the prison. The other, some say it's just a, a trick of the light. Mm. I know that, because. Uh, I've done the torchlight yeah, tour yeah. twice, mm -hmm. and that particular area, whenever we've spoken mm -hmm. about that, I've actually felt oh. from the stairwell mm -hmm. behind me where I've been mm -hmm. standing, and yeah. I've been at the back of the mm -hmm. uh, of the uh, of the tour. Um, mm -hmm. I've always, both times, I've felt icy oh, right. hand mm -hmm. on my shoulder, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was in the same spot both mm -hmm. times. First time I brushed it off, I thought, okay, it's mm -hmm. just my nerves. Second time, I'm like, same spot. There's definitely something there. Um, now, I understand that there was a situation involving the uh, uh, the watchtower. Ah, yes. Now, this is probably one of the most quoted stories, and I've actually met this prison guard who's now retired, uh, Sean Sheriff. So, um, I'm originally from South Australia, but I've talked to a lot of people who grew up in uh, West Australia, and the prison is kind of hidden because on one side is the hostel, is Fremantle Hostel, the other side is the Oval. But behind the prison, Hampton Road, uh, for many years, was the only major road you go down south. You know, people go on holidays, and people tell me when they were growing up, they would drive down Hampton Road, and they'll see this big building, and they'll see these gun towers, and these people wandering backwards and forwards, and they ask their parents, and they say, oh, that's the prison. So by the 1960s, there were six gun towers all around the prison, and they meant 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with a guard of a .22 rifle. So imagine being up there for eight hours. Mm and you so have to keep your eyes tr uh, tr uh, you know, peeled at all times. So um, actually on the Western Wing, gun tower number four, Sean Sheriff was doing an eight hour shift, it's the 1970s and it's two o'clock in the morning. And he had a radio in there and he was listening to some news. And he said, he told me that uh, suddenly the radio crackled and the sound went out and the, the light glowed and intermittently and he felt a, a sort of clammy feeling, he felt sick in his stomach and he felt uh, there was a presence in the gun tower. So um, he turned around, he saw a figure staring at him with a coat and a long beard. So he grabbed his gun, and there's a covered walkway and there's an uncovered walkway. So he ran to the end of the uncovered walkway, turned around, and that figure in the hut had disappeared. And he said for the rest of his shift, he refused to go back in that hut. Mm. And he went downstairs and he told 
and the officials are never doing another stint at that gun tower again. Um, he was actually near retirement, he went down to live in Albany, but he had friends in Batty Library and he described this person and um, the Batty Library had recently found a whole lot of photographs of ex-convicts who sadly when they served that time uh, re-offended but as prisoners. So these, uh, again, it was a book called uh, Australia's Last Convicts. And he found that photograph. I have that book with me right now. So there's the book. And he said, he looked for the photographs and he said, that's the man. And you will find it on page 13. Page 13, appropriate enough. And Sean Sheriff said, that's the man. William Chopin. Yes. So uh, he was a convict who was sent here on uh, Norwood for forgery and he trained as a chemist. And he was actually, he was reincarnated back when he was a prisoner in about 1984 uh, for uh, stealing and for procuring an abortion. That means he probably would have uh, provided an abortion service, would have been illegal at that time. And then he died in Fremantle uh, Hospital, age 97, about 1900. So he says, that's the person, it's actually, it's like it's well, well, that's yeah. the man he saw up in the gun tower. Wow, wow. What other, uh, um, uh, hauntings have taken place. Well, um, sadly there have been suicides. Not all of them have been chronicled. They'd only really chronicled suicides from the 1960s onwards. And uh, of course, on the tour you visit the gallows where the last uh, 44 executions in West Australia were held. So we, I've had a lot of stories from uh, guides who told me, um, let's see, uh, Paul Coates told me that he was doing a tour that during the daytime and he saw a figure in the back of the group with uh, um, wearing a woolen cloth and sort of a scar on his lip and he looked away and that person disappeared and he felt pretty certain it was the ghost of the last person hanged in Fremantle prison. It was a man with a cleft lip and that was the serial killer Eric Edgar Cook who was executed in 1964. Uh, he, he was the, the night caller. He used to, in the 1950s and 60s, break in suburban houses at night and kill complete strangers at random. When he was finally caught, he was tried and executed for one murder. He actually confessed to eight. Wow. And injuring 13 other people. But there's also a lot of stories about the only woman hanged in Fremantle Prison. And we had 157 legal executions in West Australia. And uh, all, only 44 of them were here in Fremantle. All the other ones were in public. Outside Perth Jail, uh, down at the Roundhouse in Fremantle, in country areas such as York and Broome. And uh, the only woman hanged at Fremantle Prison is Martha Rendell. And uh, a lot of people want to see the face in the window. Have you heard about that? I've heard about that. Yes. So you can see it in the chapel window on the uh, southern end. And uh, uh, Sean Shaw uh, talk, talked about that. And in 1907, she was tried and convicted of poisoning three of her stepchildren using hydrochloric acid. Wow. But uh, this was uh, sort of a year after the events. Uh, the, the doctor who treated these children said they died of dysentery, which is uh, inflammation of the throat. Uh, but the press picked up on the fact she was a stepmother. Right. And uh, we all know from fairy stories, stepmothers are evil. And the interesting thing is uh, we have uh, documentation. Uh, the newspaper published her last words because a week after she was executed, the papers published the last words that she dictated to the minister who took her last words before the day she was executed which is 6th of October, and uh, it said, Before God and man, I'm innocent of the death of my stepchildren. She said it was an accidental overdose, and uh, they also, you know, the official the doctor's diagnosis was dysentery. So I've, um, a woman called Linda Vick said that she was uh, 
doing a, a tour and the, the group felt a, a strange smell and people were taking photographs in the tour and they found a sort of a steam rising from it when you couldn't see it from the naked eye. And another tour guide called Terry said she, she, was, she was doing, he was doing a tour in the gallows and one uh, sort of took fright, ran out and uh, came out. She was very disturbed and said she saw a, a, a white figure hanging from the beam in the gallows. And uh, so these are the ghost stories. And also uh, we've had, we have ex-guards who come back and do us um, talks and we have a separate enclosed area, which is a separate female prison from 1886 to 1907. And we had these ex-female guards gave us guards a talk, and they said in the 1950s, 1950s and the 1960s, the female prisoners still talked about Martha Rendell because it was such a big story in the early part of the 20th century because they feel her ghost is still there, yeah. that she wanders the corridors at night. Which is very interesting because a couple of years ago, two-thirds of the female prison has been put aside and it's become a backpacker's hostel. Mm. So we can tell people, if you want to, you can sleep in a haunted prison tonight. We tell the backpackers, uh, that's okay. She just wanders from the corridor. She has a nice little teaspoon uh, to comfort you. Has she actually been seen by backpackers? Uh, not that I know of, but uh, they, we can put them on the list. So what other uh, ghost stories? Well, I want to tell, um, we have, uh, we have a tour guide called Steve, uh, who's uh, seen uh, strange things move uh, in the prison. He says in uh, 2003, he was doing tours in the fourth division. He was up in the upper landing because there's three landings. And he was talking to the group and uh, there was an old bin. Now, of course, modern bins have hinges, but this is a bin with a detachable lid. And he was talking and it suddenly flipped up in the air. And the visitors went to him and said, how did you do that? He said, I didn't do that. And then a few months later, he was doing a night tour and he was up in the upper level again, in fourth division, and uh, a bin uh, there uh, were moved by strangely to the middle and uh, of the division and then the, the lid again popped up in the air. So, uh, and once again, they said, oh, bravo, that's wonderful. It's wonderful special effects. But he said, that's, <laughs> I have no explanation of that. Yeah. Fourth division is interesting because that was where lifers and murderers were. And uh, we have specialist tours, we have um, art tours, because when the prison was closing down in 1991, prisoners doing the arts program were allowed to paint directly onto the walls of the cells mm. for you, the tourists of the future. And uh, some of, it's only in the art tours you can only access some of these cells. And this is connected to a, a, a prisoner called Peter Owen Cameron. Now he was in for murder. Uh, he was an Aboriginal who um, was studying a medical technician, but he went to uh, the house of an ex-girlfriend and he lost his temper and killed the new boyfriend and that's why he was sent to prison. But he did a lot of good work in prison. He's sort of like the, uh, the hospital. He uh, mentored people to try and uh, sort of don't make them make the same mistakes he did. And when the prison was closed down, he was allowed in his cell to paint a very uh, detailed uh, painting of the Waddle. And this is called the Water Spirit that created what's known as the Swan River. And it's very detailed, but he had this, this was only in the last year and it's incomplete. So the prison closed down in 1991. He was transferred to Karnak Prison. He had five more years to serve. And he promised that when he um, finished his sentence, if he was allowed, he would come back and finish that painting. Well, um, in about uh, 1995, uh, Lewis Cott, who was a cleaner, was cleaning up early in the morning in the prison. And uh, it's documented that he uh, saw an Aboriginal uh, wander into 4th Division and he looked at him and he fainted it away and then he woke up and he, 
he saw them up on the landing and he ran up and grabbed a man called David Campbell. He was a person who worked here since the 1950s, a uh, supervisor, and then once he's, um, that he retired, he became, it was a tour supervising him for years and years, great man, he's passed away sadly. And uh, they looked around for this person who might have wandered into the prison and he described him to David Campbell and he thought that was Peter Irwin Cameron. And then David said, well, that's very interesting because I just learned that um, on Sunday, uh, on the weekend, uh, Peter Irwin Cameron was allowed to leave the prison because he was trustee and go to his niece's place because he was just about to finish his sentence. He was going to go back on Monday and sign up and become a free man, but he died of a heart attack on the Sunday. Oh, wow. So maybe he had come back, uh, even if he couldn't come back in the flesh, he'd come back in the spirit to finish his painting. So if you ever go on the art tour, you'll see it's, uh, you only see it on the art tour, we do it on Heritage Weeks, we open up that cell, and it's uh, Peter Owen Cameron's The Rainbow Servant of the Spirit Children. It's a beautiful, beautiful painting, but you will see it is still unfinished. Yeah. Um, any other ghost stories? Well, I'd uh, like to... Oh yes, uh, Peter, uh, Steve Green has another story. This is another gallows story. Um, we love our visitors, but of course, you know, children sometimes don't have an idea of what's happening, so we, we try to abuse them because sometimes they're bored or sometimes they just scream. Uh, <laughs> and you'd have to dangle keys in front of them and hopefully they go to sleep because it's not very interesting for children. But uh, he had a, a group and a woman in the pram, and this child was, was crying and screaming, but the mother was doing the good thing. She was holding back so it wouldn't interfere. And then they went to the gallows, and this child really screamed its head off. And uh, the, the woman said, um, the, the group went out, and because uh, this woman's obviously embarrassed. But then um, when uh, Steve went around to help the, take the perambulator out, you know, the carriage, uh, the baby smiled and then reached out to uh, the beam with a rope and said, bye-bye, bye-bye, which put a chill down the back of the mother and Stephen, although he, she had seen something that was that was hanging there in the beam. Because yeah. Yeah. children uh, are very susceptible. They, yeah. Yeah. they can see spirits. Yeah. Yeah. But now I'd like to conclude with my own personal story. Yes. So uh, this was the second year I was here and... Um, uh, frankly, we don't allow people to wander around by themselves, uh, mostly because it's an old place and people can injure themselves and no one would know. And uh, last year, a teacher wandered off from a school group and locked himself in a cell. Uh, I don't think they'll, the students would ever let him forget that. But um, I was uh, helping at a function one night and there were so many people, they allowed people to wander around, but they had the security and tour guides all around the prison. So I was the place, the punishment yard, which is the flogging post. And uh, so this is about seven o'clock at night, Saturday night, and uh, uh, the function was happening. These people were allowed to wander around by the supervision, but a middle-aged woman uh, rushed out to me and she was crying, and she'd just come from first division. And she said, I was there and I was by myself, and the night, you know, the sun has gone down, it's dark in there. And I looked up to the top landing, and I saw a man bathed in the blue light. And mouth was opening, seeing this scream, but uh, nothing was coming out. And she said, but in my head, I felt that she was, he was saying, I can't stand, I'm going to jump and kill myself. And she was crying so much, uh, she was making me cry. I'd never seen this before, this person had seen something that she was making me upset. And, and um, I, had, I asked, have you ever done a tour of the prison? And she said, no. I said, well, that's uh, interesting, because First Division, in, um, before the suicide net was put in, 
uh, a prisoner had jumped from the highest landing down to the ground and died in first division. And you might have seen the ghost of the person who committed suicide there in 1900. Uh, that didn't comfort her at all. She just cried even more. And then I said, uh, our usual joke is uh, the prison authorities snapped into action. And sure enough, uh, 23 years later, they put the nets in. Uh, she didn't laugh at that either. So I tried to comfort her. But that's my own personal ghost story. Um, and I think finally, what can, what can you tell us about Moondine Joe? Moondine Joe. Well, um, all the children love Moondine Joe. Within his own lifetime, he became our best known convict and our best known bush ranger. And uh, he was picked up in Mormouth Wales in 1848 for stealing bread, cheese, and bacon. He was transported here for 10 years. When his boat landed, within a week, they all got their ticket to leave. Now, that's your uh, parole system. And that's when they're going to be dispersed to one of the hiring depots up north and down south. And just, just shows how desperate they were for labour. And he settled in uh, 2J, uh, which, and uh, he became an odd jobs man. And he became friendly to local Aborigines. They taught him how to live off the land, which is good because he later became a bush ranger. And he, they gave him the nickname of Moondock, which he was known by and referred to in the press at that time. And we're still not quite sure if it's a local name for friend or body of water. And in 1861, he was tried and convicted of stealing a uh, horse and locked up in 2J jail. But the very night after the day he was sentenced, he broke out of 2J jail. He rode away in the horse he was accused of stealing using the saddle and bridle of the magistrate who had sentenced him. <laughs> they had a 2J uh, Moondine Joe Festival every year commemorating that. He was picked up a, a few weeks later, sent for three years in, in Fremantle, uh, the convict establishment. And then in 1865, he was tried and convicted of stealing or killing an ox. Now this is something he always denied. So the jealous rivals in 2J had killed the ox, put it on his land, so he would go to jail and they would grab his land. So now he felt it was his duty to escape. So he escaped from a work party outside the walls, had another year add on to his sentence. He was found in his cell, he managed to smuggle in a file, and he just managed to file the lock off before he was caught. And he got another five years add on to his sentence. He was put into chains, that means they weld chains on their legs that weigh 28 pounds. 12.7 kilograms and they've got to wear them 24-7 in three months to two years, uh, put into solitary confinement uh, and he escaped from solitary confinement in a chain to another convict and discovered uh, a week later up at Guildford, him and the convict had robbed the store and a common destination for escaping convicts was that they were going to get supplies to cross the desert to South Australia and now the papers are treating him as a hero. Why? Well by the 1860s we had uh, a governor uh, Dr. John Hampton, who was a former Compter General of uh, Van Diemen's Land. Have you been to Tasmania? Ah, yes, yes. Well, uh, you know Australian history, that's where convicts were treated the worst. It's a very harsh reputation. Port Arthur. And um, when he came here, he knew the convicts this was come to an end. So he decided to squeeze as much work out of the convicts as possible to do a big program of public works. So we had a lot of buildings and roads to thank for him, including Government House in Perth Town Hall. But he clashed with the previous Compter General who actually phased out flogging and solitary confinement as a punishment. He insisted bringing it back. So this is uh, Captain Ed Henderson, so he resigned. So Hampton appointed his own son in charge of convicts, gave his son three other government posts. What a great dad. Oh, by the way, he was, uh, he was uh, under house arrest in Van Diemen's Land for a while because he was accused of corruption while well, um, uh, administrator in uh, Van Diemen's Land. And um, he wanted to do this big program of public works, so they closed down a lot of convict depots. Now the businesses have to hire free settlers at higher wages. And the businesses didn't like that. 
and the convicts complained about the harsh punishment, so it's very simple. He dismissed the magistrate who used to visit the convicts every month to get their complaints. Now, if there's no magistrate to get any complaints, there's no complaints. Perfect minister of sense. And finally, because the convicts were being treated much harsher than the previous regime, they were getting a lot more escapes. They were getting one escape from months as five or six, and they break into houses. So by the 1860s, the Hamptons were very unpopular because they were accused of bringing the worst of the convict system from Van Diemen's Land here to West Australia. And by this time, the convict system had ended over East, and people here thought the convict system was a drain on our reputation that the convict system could come to an end here in West Australia. So no wonder they were treating Moondyne Joe as a hero. So the Hamptons didn't like that, and that's why they built an escape route cell, which we show on the tour. It's lined with Jarrah, and uh, it had three sets of bars in the windows, and uh, uh, he's in there for 23 out of 24 hours, put in there on the first week of January, uh, uh, 1867, and the papers reported the Compton General visited in the cell and said, Joseph Elijah Johns, you will never escape from the cell, and if you escape from the cell, all will be forgiven. And it only took him a few months to escape. to the Fremantle Prison uh, for any of their tours, please go to viator.com. That's V-I-A-T-O-R.com. Or give them a call on Before they moved in, the house needed a ton of work done to it. Ron, my brother, had to basically rebuild this house. It needed new plywood on the floors, new plumbing, electrical roof ceilings. The house has been vacant for so many years, and the people squatting in it completely ransacked and destroyed the place. So after eight months of rebuilding this house, his son and him moved in a week ago. He told me a few days ago he thought he heard a man's voice in his house. He said he ignored it and thought it could be the neighbors. And that is until this evening he sent me a text saying Damien, his seven-year-old son, says at the dinner table that he hears a man's voice asking for help. Damien has 
Had some behavior issues over the last few years. We think he's on the spectrum. So at first I thought it might be him having symptoms of mental health issues, which wouldn't be a far leap considering the problems we've had with Damien. Getting suspended from school, telling his principals and teachers he wanted to hurt himself. He's not worthy of being alive. So now Ron is freaked, as am I, because they can now both hear this man asking for help. Ron was skeptical about what he heard until Damien told him that he hears the man asking for help. So what does he do? How does he figure out what's going on in his house? How do we figure out if it's malevolent or if it's nothing at all? Someone please help me with any information you can give. Well, Simone, perhaps if you looked into the history of the house, then you might find out if someone had passed away there or, ne or nearby. Maybe have a paranormal investigator come in and ask the ghost what it needs help with. Once the ghost is helped, it may leave the house altogether. But I can't promise that. I don't believe it is malevolent, though. And this one from Sharma B, who writes... In 1987, my husband and I bought a home built in 1947. It was a beautiful little bungalow with hardwood floors and tons of character. And there were two owners before us. We were unpacking and setting up a house. Our trusty old clock radio was on the dresser waiting to be set up and as yet unplugged. It wasn't a battery model. Remember, this was pre-cell phone and home computers were the most part. Oh, for the most part. The radio began to just start playing and the dial lit up on several occasions. We began to freak out a bit. After this happened, we decided to move the radio into the kitchen... While I was carrying it down a hallway, it began to play again on talk radio. We then threw it out in the garbage and went to a wind-up alarm clock for a while. There were other occurrences in the house, nothing ever threatening, but the clock really freaked us out. I would be interested to hear what else you have experienced there, Sharma. As for the radio, unless your house is haunted, the only other explanation would be some energy source nearby... I know you said it wasn't a battery model. However, many clock radios had a battery for backup in the event of a power failure. But considering you have said you have had other occurrences, I would think it was indeed some sort of entity. You didn't say if the radio turned on at the same time each day or not. And that would be interesting. Occurrences at a regular time would suggest the time of death for the spirit. Remember, if you have experienced any paranormal or extraterrestrial encounters, the Midnight Hour would love to hear from you folks. And if you're willing to be interviewed on the radio, you're more than welcome. Please email the Midnight Hour at info at iplradio.org.au and ensure you put the Midnight Hour in the subject line. All names are changed to protect the identity of our contributing listeners. And now, one final story for the night. Uh, this is one I wrote called The Lighthouse in the Storm.
The lighthouse stood on the rocky island a few hundred metres from the mainland, casting its light across the rocks, warning ships and boats of the jagged danger that hid in the dark waters, poking above the crashing waves like, a, like decayed teeth poking above the gums of a rotten mouth. Stan, the ageing, half-crippled lighthouse keeper, was enjoying a game of cards against his young apprentice, Ryan. Enjoying cards might be a stretch. He was losing and losing hard. Ryan had already $130 of Stan's money. As Ryan laid his hand down, Stan cursed again, and Ryan collected the cash from the, t from the table. Hey, we'd better go check on the lamp, Ryan said, looking at the clock on the wall. It was almost midnight and time for the men to carry out their rounds. Yeah, you'd best get a move on them, boy, Stan said, taking up his walking stick and hobbling toward the galley. And don't go cocking things up again like you did last night. Stan was always abusing Ryan, as he had with the three apprentices before him, but unlike his predecessors, Ryan was not going to quit. He knew Stan was getting ready to retire. When he did, Ryan would take over running the lighthouse. It was a lonely existence being a lighthouse keeper. Sure, you could go to the mainland through the day, as the two often, often would, but the nights could get bitterly cold and frightfully lonely. Visitors were never allowed to venture to the island, not that anyone wanted to. The island was nothing more than a kilometre-wide rock pile where nothing would grow, and the waves would crash against the rocks, creating an awful sound. Unless you were used to it, the sound would drive you insane. Women were strictly forbidden. The mere interruption to the lightkeeper's routine would cause chaos. A distraction like a woman being present would cause the keeper to forget his duties. Storms like the one brewing outside caused the waves to crash completely over the island, almost threatening to obliterate it completely. The lighthouse was the only thing keeping the ships in the nearby shipping channel from crashing on the rocks. Stan poured himself another rum from the bottle he had hidden in his jacket pocket and downed it in one shot. He dared not let Ryan know about the alcohol. That was another of his rules for the lighthouse. No alcohol. Up the top of the stairs, Ryan was inspecting the lamp, ensuring enough oil to keep the lamp lit for the remaining six hours before dawn's light would provide some reprieve for the men. He pumped the oil into the lamp's tank and replaced the cap. Down below, sitting in the living area, Dan had given up on the glass and was draining the last remnants of his rum straight from the bottle. He flipped the lid of the trash can and threw the bottle in, when he heard a strange voice behind him. Turning, he saw the most beautiful woman, her hair long and flowing, dark like the night, her eyes bright blue and her lips, oh, those lips bright red. Her thin, delicate, light blue clothes, almost like a negligee, clung to her slender figure. Occasionally, when the light was right, Stan could see the outline of her bosom and was convinced that this woman was not wearing undergarments beneath the flowing out outfit she wore. Who the hell are you? Stan asked, rubbing his eyes to try to get rid of the hallucination. But when he opened them again, the woman was still there. She was no hallucination. How did you get here? The sea is way too rough to row over in the storm. You could have been crushed against the rocks, you daft woman. I'm Lenora. Lenora, eh? Hey? Well, you're a fine sight for these old eyes, Lenora. 
you alone here? She asked, looking around. Alone? No, I got me apprentices up checking the lamp right now, he said. He figured he must be drunker than he thought. There's no way this woman could possibly make it from the mainland in this weather. How did you get here? He asked again. Call your apprentice. Make him come downstairs. Stan stood at the bottom of the stairs and caught upwards. Hey, boy! Get your ass down here! Ryan called down, protesting. I haven't finished yet. Never mind all that. Get down here now. But there's shipping due tonight and the storm. I said now! Ryan was confused. Stan was always a stickler for checking on the lamp every six hours, especially when there were ships going to be passing through the channel. Still, an order is an order, and he trotted down the stairs, stumbling when he saw Lenora standing next to Stan. My, oh, my, a woman. Sorry, ma'am, but we don't see many women on the island. I'm Lenora. I'm Ryan, and this is Stan, my apprentice master. Ryan held his hand out, withdrawing it when Lenora failed to shake it. Uh, what exactly are you doing here tonight, Lenora? I have come for one of you. I want you to be my companion. Stan held his hand out to stop Ryan from moving closer to Lenora. Which one of us do you want? He asked. Well, you will decide. You will both decide. Des decide? Ryan said, confused. He looked at the decrepit old man that was drooling around Lenora thought to himself that this old buzzard must be close to death if he is a day. So why would a beautiful woman such as Lenora want an old, hunchbacked old man such as Stan when she could have a more youthful lover such as himself? Still, she was there and she wanted one of the men to be her companion. By the time the clock strikes for the next hour, one of you will be my companion, Lenora said, and he will be the one to decide. Well, it's me. There can be no mistake about it, said uh, said Stan, shoving Ryan out the way. Ryan here is just a boy, merely 19, and you can, you can clearly need a more mature man in your life. Ryan stood aghast and took up a flashlight from the table. He swung it at Stan, missing him by inches. Stan retaliated, grabbing his walking stick and swinging it at Ryan, hitting his head. Ryan was bleeding, a small crimson stain developing on his shirt from the dripping blood. He struck back at the old man, sending him hurtling across the floor. Lenora stood back, watching and smiling. The clock on the mantel ticked away the minutes as the hour hand drew slowly toward the one. Stan picked himself up and swung his walking stick furiously at Ryan, knocking the younger man to the ground. He stood over Ryan, the walking stick raised about to strike. Ryan punched Stan in the face and Stan fell backward, hitting his head on the slate floor. The two were becoming mad, obsessed over winning the hand of this strange but intoxicating woman. The two didn't know why, but they felt they had to have Lenora, even if it meant killing the other. Stan was on hands and knees, trying to regain his footing. His walking stick was on the ground a few feet away from him. He crawled toward it, grabbing just as Ryan attacked once more. The old man collapsed on the ground and rolled onto his back. He clutched his chest as his heart threatened to burst through his frail chest. Ryan was standing over him with Stan's walking stick in his hand. Ryan lifted the walking stick as the clock on the mantel gave out a single chime. Stan's eyes fixed on Ryan. Then they seemed to gaze through him. His hand no longer clutched his chest, no longer trying to comfort his heart, but was limp on the ground. Pounding in his chest has stopped when his heart did. 
precisely one o'clock. Ryan moved away from the body and looked at Lenora. You have won, Ryan. And now you shall be my companion. Ryan felt something change him. He fell to his hands and knees in front of Lenora. Something was wrong. His bones were aching, muscles stretching, ligaments were tearing. He felt his face stretching, his teeth becoming sharp like the teeth of some wild animal. His ears were pointy and his hair was now shriveling, retracting into his skin. His eyes were a mix of orange and yellow and a tail was growing. He was hairless, grotesque, and a snout had developed. He drooled and snarled. His shredded clothes lay in a scattered pile of cloth. Claws grew where before he had toes and his hands and feet had become paws. Lenora looked at him, tying a rope around his neck. You will make the perfect companion in hell, she said. As the ground beneath them trembled, a fissure opening to allow them to enter into the pit. brings us to the end of the show. <laughs> Thank you for keeping me company tonight. I look forward to meeting you again next Friday night. Until then, may all your dreams come true. Especially the scary ones. <laughs> Stories on tonight's show included the case of Lady Sanox, written by Arthur Conan Doyle, Inner Sanctum's 1945 radio thriller The Song of the Slasher, written by Milton Lewis and starring Arnold Moss, and The Lighthouse in the Storm, written by Brenton Fowl. We also thank our contributing listeners, Simone T and Sham B, and Matthew Bateman Graham and staff of Fremantle Prison. Uh, music on tonight's show was... Uh, Ave Satani from The Omen, uh, Aunt Marion's Visitor from The Omen, uh, and Broken Ice from The Omen, and Amityville Horror main title. This has been an IPL radio broadcast. Coming to you from Rockingham, IPL Radio.